All right. All right. Welcome. Welcome to Seacoast. If you're new, my name is Pastor Dale, and this is Pastor Matt beside me, and uh, you're going to meet him in just a little bit. I thought it would be kind of fun today to do a little interview with Matt, and uh, because a lot of times Matt, who uh, has a huge responsibility here at Seacoast as part of our staff, and I just kind of realized you may not know all that goes on during the week that uh, the Matt does. You often see him back here playing drums. Uh, Matt, uh, how much do you get paid to play drums? Can you answer that Ooh, question first? That's a good question. I, I, I don't feel comfortable sharing that <laughs> right now. Paige takes care of me. Okay, Paige takes yeah. care of you. Okay, <laughs> okay. so low pay, good side benefits. But anyway, that's fine. <laughs> Anytime you keep your wife happy, Paige, Matt is married uh, to uh, Paige, our worship leader. And worship director does a great job. But Matt, when you're on the drums, you're just volunteering, helping, uh, helping out the, helping out the team. Yeah. But uh, I actually pulled up a slide that just kind of summarizes what Matt does, so you can get to know him and be praying for him. Number one responsibility is he's the pastor, shepherd, uh, key leader for our young adult ministry, and that includes both uh, young adults uh, and young marrieds, and. Uh, but then also is involved in helping uh, pastor and be involved in the lives of especially the men in the worship ministry, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, as a musician and a pastor, you can kind of bring those two worlds together. So that's, that's, that's kind of the big bucket, as I call it, in your job. But then also Matt does what we call creative communications. In fact, he's kind of a team leader for our creative communications team. And under that involves everything from helping think through how to reinforce the teaching of God's truth is what you see behind us. Uh, it involves the uh, development of uh, working with uh, Cole, who's down front here, actually, in support of Matt, his partner. Uh, Cole is our video production guy that puts together all those great videos, like the interview with the MERS family that you just saw. Yeah. Uh, so the visual arts, the video arts that reinforce what we're doing as we're uh, teaching and communicating vision and God's mm -hmm. word. Um, <clears throat> website development. Eighty-five uh, percent of people today, before they ever visit a church a single time, they check the church out via the website. And Matt's overseen a remake of our website in the last couple of years and keeps that thing fresh. We really appreciate that. And then social media, which is huge in terms of reaching our culture and reaching people, all of that and more. And then finally, I've, I made up this final one, Matt. Create, I'm really excited to, uh, to hear Creative strategic teammate. Oh, that's cute. Uh, you know, anytime I start to work on one of our, <laughs> you like that. Okay. I do. Anytime I start to work on a new sermon series, uh, you know, I'm into the scriptures. I'm into what it's about. Uh, I just spent this past week laying out sermon series for the next uh, 10 months, actually, uh, as I had a chance to get away and do some longer term planning. But when I do that, it's Matt and his team that helps me think, okay, how do we communicate this uh, creatively to the next generation? So um, I really appreciate you and your team. So it's, uh, and then Matt does all this, by the way, while still going to school, right? Yes, sir. So he's at uh, Horizon uh, working on his degree in ministry. And uh, so he does all, all this actually kind of working like 32 hours a week for us. So, would you pray for Matt <laughs> but, and say thanks to him for all the stuff that he does. I really, really appreciate that. All right, got, just real quick, Matt, let me yeah. ask you two questions. Uh, what are you most excited about with kind of where God has the young adult, young married's ministry and where God is kind of taking that? What, what are you most excited about? I think I'm just most excited that, first, that we have those ministries here at Seacoast. I think for a long time, 
the young adults. There's always been faithful people who have helped to make sure the young adults have a place to be and um, that they're being uh, nurtured and, and that they're drawn into community. But it's really cool. I love over the last year the just the growth in either both the uh, young adults and yeah. the young marrieds. And just that there's a place where um, they can have find community. Yeah. I think for Paige and I, the first you know few years that you know we've been married almost almost uh, seven years, the first few years of our of our marriage was kind of lonely. We were here at Seacoast, and we had a lot of like friends, but the, you know there's different life stages, and so there wasn't a lot of young marrieds for us to hang out with. And so it's really it's been really cool to see God bring young marrieds uh, here to Seacoast, and for them to be embedded in community. And same with young adults. It's just, yeah. Just whatever we can do to get people embedded into relationships and community is a win. And so yeah. I think God is doing that. He's, he's for yeah, sure. Yeah, it's probably the, it's one of the faster growing segments of our church. And uh, we really appreciate it. We, we want to be a multi-generational church, reaching every generation. That's one of the blessings of this place. But yet we want to connect the younger, the older together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, Matt's ministry is definitely helping do that. So when you think about young adults and young marrieds, one more question uh, if there's some out here listening, they mm-hmm. may be fairly new and not connected yet. Yeah. What do they need to know about getting connected to these communities? Well, young adults, if you guys are out there, post-college, pre-marriage, uh, we have a group every Thursday night at our place, and we do dinner at 6 o'clock, and then the group starts at 7. We're done by 9, but you're free to linger longer, as we call it. But uh, yeah, so there's weekly groups for young adults to be a part of, and then uh, there's some events that we're doing with young marrieds uh, throughout the rest of the summer, and I'm excited that we're launching new life groups for young marrieds in September. So Great. it's coming. Incredible. Yeah. So let me pray. Let me pray for you. We've asked Matt to bring us the word today, so uh, it's going to be great to, uh, to, uh, to listen and learn from him. Father God, thanks for Matt. Thanks for his ministry here. Appreciate this, uh, brother, so much. Thank you for the gift that he is to our team. Uh, thank you for... He has many skills that you've uh, given him. Father, every, every one of those, um, as in the case of all of us, are just gifts from God. Mm. So we don't take any pride in that, but we just take a lot of joy in um, being able to uh, team up and do ministry together. So we, we love you. We pray that you just uh, bless us uh, from your word in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thanks, Dale. Woo-hoo! Well... Good morning. It is, it's really fun to be out of my little habitat and uh, to be able to join you as a human. Uh, and uh, yeah, so today is week three of our series called God Is. And uh, I think one of the things that you need to know about me, first and foremost, is that I have an addiction. It's called technology. And come on, who's, who's with me? My, thank you. I'm not alone. Uh, no, one of the things I love uh, is technologies, especially practical technology like an app. I love apps. My favorite store is the App Store. I, I, love, I also love shiny devices with a little apple on them. Anything uh, that they put out, I love. But apps are awesome because I, I love finding the perfect app to meet the perfect need. You know, when, when you find the right app to, to, that meets a need, that makes life easier, that makes life run smoother, isn't that just so awesome? So for me, it is. It's super, it's awesome. And then when I do find that perfect app, I, uh, like, my inner evangelist kicks into high gear and I have to go share it with the world. I'm like, you have to check out this app. 
It like does, it makes life so much better. And so anybody who knows me knows like I'm the, there's an app for that guy. Oh dude, like there's an app for that. There's an app for that. What are you doing? There's an app. That's me. That is for sure me. Uh, there's actually a term I came across a couple of years ago. Maybe you've heard it just called fanism. And I think fanism really just describes things well. I feel like we are all fans of something. You know, we love we loved TV shows. We love our movies. We love the actors. We love sports teams. Uh, some of you guys are really into, you know, your foodies. You just, you have restaurants that you love. Um, some of you love shoes. Won't, won't talk about that one right now. And, uh, but while there's nothing wrong with being passionate about these things, I think we need to understand that our fanism can easily morph into worship. Here's the thing that I believe. I, I believe humans were created to worship. The English word worship actually derives from the idea of worship, meaning that we all serve those things to which we attribute ultimate worth. And so to be a human is to be a worshiper. It's actually one of the distinguishing marks of, of humans in uh, living in this universe filled with living creatures, that we all worship something or someone. And this is true whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. This isn't just for you know, religious people. Whether you think of yourself as spiritual or not, everybody is worshiping all the time. Because worship is a posture of the heart. It's an attitude of loyalty and trust towards something or someone in your life that you believe makes life worth living. I believe that ultimately what you worship will define you. It will make your life meaningful and give you security. It will try to. And the thing is, worshiping God means attributing to Him the ultimate worth. It means seeing God as the one who can satisfy the cravings of our soul. St. Augustine, he said it well when he said, we were made for you, O God, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. We're a restless bunch of people. And every single day, we are all surrounded by an endless catalog of things, people, stuff, things that we are tempted to look to daily in order to find the satisfactions that our souls crave. And what we're going to talk about today is that worship of God is the only worship that will truly satisfy our hearts and our souls. We are created to worship our Creator. And so if we want to worship God in spirit and in truth, it's important that we know the truth about God. And so I love that God hasn't, he hasn't remained aloof in heaven, leaving us on our own to figure Him out. He's actually revealed Himself through Scripture. He's revealed his attributes, his character. So we get, to, we get these little snippets of who God is by looking at Scripture. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out and turn them on. Nah. There's an app for that, by the way. Come on, come on. Uh, and open up to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. And while you guys are turning or poking there, I... Uh, 
just a couple little nuggets about Psalm 145. It's actually, an, it was written by uh, King David, and it's an acrostic psalm. You know, so written in the Hebrew language, but it works its, alphabetically works its way through the Hebrew alphabet, acrostically. So it's kind of like the, the, the game you play in the car, A through Z. You like to look for things that start with A, look for things that start with B. Anyways, so he, this is an acrostic psalm. And uh, what I thought we would do is just read it all the way through in its entirety just to get a bird's eye view of uh, Psalm 145 and then dive into the specific parts. So I thought we could change things up a little bit and I'll stand in honor of reading God's word and I'll read one, Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God, O King. And I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and your, and your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and I will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the, and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever God, we ask you this morning that you would open our eyes to see you for who you are and that you would set us free as a result. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So Psalm 145, uh, it pr David is praising God for a variety of attributes. Today we're not going to necessarily look at one or two attributes. We're going to look at a bunch. Uh, I was thinking about it earlier this week, and Psalm 145 kind of reminded me of a pinata. You know, so we're going to hit this thing, and it's just candy is going to come out everywhere. <laughs> Theological candy for everyone. And so it's, it's filled with so many truths. And so I just want to, diving into these first couple of verses, David begins to kind of de describe everyday worship. You know, one interesting observation uh, to make when you guys are reading through Scripture is to... Look at how a book or a chapter is bookended. The book ends 
kind of what, what he says at the very beginning and what he says at the very end can actually provide a lot of insight into the author's intent. One of my favorite bookends is uh, like in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew writes at the very beginning in chapter 1, he says, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then in the very last chapter, uh, the very last verse of the last chapter, Jesus' final words to his disciples after he has given the Great Commission, the very last thing he says is, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I just think that's awesome that Matthew, he bookends his gospel with the idea that God is near. God is present. God is with us. And so the bookends in Psalm 145, we see David beginning and ending with his resolve to worship, to exalt, to praise God forever and ever. And so you get the sense that for David, worship isn't this 9 a.m. and 10.45 on Sunday morning. It's, it's an everyday, perpetual thing. As I mentioned earlier, we are all created to worship. And we, we just can't help it. We're, just, we, we're worshiping beings. And, uh, and worship isn't something that we do just on Sundays. In fact, I would argue that personal worship services are happening all day, every day, all of us are preaching a sermon to ourselves. No more, no one is more influential than you are in your life because no one speaks to you more than you do. I don't want to repeat that. It's kind of good. <laughs> but when you think about it, we're all preaching some kind of sermon to ourselves. We're our hearts are all expressing a longing for something. You know, our hearts are singing praises, expressing longings. The question isn't. Are we worshiping? The question is, what or who are we worshiping? So like us, David's praise and worship is perpetual. It's unceasing. But what we see in verse 1 is that he's directing his worship to God, to his king. And that's an interesting thing right there, the fact that King David, pretty powerful, popular, I mean, he's, you know, he was a very popular king. At the time, he, is, he doesn't hesitate to bow down before his king. You know, in a, I got to imagine that in a day when it was normal for great kings to demand that their people bow before them um, as God, it's pretty significant that David, in effect, he, he proclaims, I am not God. In fact, I'm nothing in comparison with the true and living God. He's my king. He alone is great. He alone is worthy of praise. So I'm going to exalt him. So his praise, it's directed towards his king. So the question is, what kind of God deserves this everyday, unending, perpetual praise? And verses 3 through 7 tell us that a God who is great. And so the word great here is actually, it's talking about God's attributes as well as his acts. The things that God has done and who God is. He's not just a great God, he's done great things. And so you can't help but imagine David, he's probably got God's resume on his mind. All of the things that this God all through history has done. Everything that he has created. He, he, at one point he says his greatness is unsearchable. Which essentially is probably him thinking like, where do I even begin? You know, to get a sense of the, the greatness of God... Uh, all you really, or one thing that you can do is either look into a telescope or a microscope. 
Uh, personally, I'm a sucker for anything that has to do with outer space. Uh, I'm not very smart on outer, things outer space. It just fascinates me, though. I love hearing, I love reading descriptions of how ridiculously massive our universe is. Does anyone else like that? Like, oh my goodness. So I've got, I thought this would, I just, you know, let me see if this one works for you guys. Um, so does anyone know what the speed of light is? What is it? Not what, I know I've heard of the speed of light, but what is the speed of light? Fast. 100, 186, did someone say that? Yes. Okay, so my research was right. So traveling, check this out, traveling at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, you would circle the earth seven times in one second. And in, in two seconds, you would pass the moon. Okay. Uh, at this speed, it would take you about 4.3 years to reach our nearest star and 100,000 years to cross our galaxy, the Milky Way. Okay, there are thought to be at least 100 billion galaxies in our universe. So it would take 2 million light years to reach the next closest galaxy and 20 million years to reach the next cluster of galaxies. And you have only just begun to explore the universe. Uh, it's big. <laughs> That's my interpretation. <clears throat> all, and here's the thing. All of this was created when our God simply spoke a word. The prophet Isaiah, actually, he says that God marked off the heavens with the breadth of his hand, which... It's a spatial metaphor uh, for a God who exists outside of space. But it also just gives us a sense of the scale of God. He's literally got the whole world in his hand. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3 say, tell us that all of this was created through Jesus, God's Son, and it is all sustained by the power of his word, Colossians 1.17 says that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And all throughout the Gospels, what we see Jesus doing is exerting his control over the natural world. We see Jesus con exerting control over the spiritual world. He's, he's uh, exerting his control over sickness, over death. So Jesus, who is God, has complete authority. So whether you guys, whether we look into a microscope or a telescope and observe the complexities of all of creation, it's just, you know, know this, that God sustains and rules all. If you were here last week, you heard Dale talk about God knowing everything. You know, in a mysterious way that involves human freedom God orders at every event and determines every action. There's a huge mystery behind that. How does, how does that happen? Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So this idea is known, can be known as the sovereignty of God. And unfortunately, the sovereignty of God has been largely reserved for especially amongst my friends and people. I don't know if it's a generational thing, but uh, the sovereignty of God has been reserved for just theological debates. 
uh, like sovereignty of God or free will and like all of these things. And it's, it's unfortunate because the sovereignty of God is so much more than just uh, content for a theolo- theological debate. It's a daily practical choice. Because here's the thing, all of us here, we're all living out our theology. What we believe to be true about God, it affects how we live our life. It's kind of the premise that this series is built on. It shapes uh, how we live each day. Our view of God shapes the choices we make. So the question is, what happens when we don't believe in the sovereignty of God? What happens when we don't believe that God is great? There's probably a lot of things that unravel if, when we stop believing that, but I would say one of them is that we turn into control freaks. We begin to try and take control ourselves through harmful ways, through manipulation, through domination, because we believe we have to be in control. I love it. Martin Luther said this. He said, The sin underneath all sin is the lie that we cannot trust Jesus and must take the matter into our own hands. The sin underneath all sin is that, is that the lie that we cannot trust Jesus and must take the matter into our own hands. When we believe that God is great, when we believe that God is sovereign, it means that we're trusting that he is in control. And what, what's so cool about that is that when we believe he's in control, it frees us from having to be in control. We don't have to be in control because he is. And that truth, you guys, is so practical and so liberating. I'll give you an example. Just, I needed this reminder just two months ago. Back in the beginning of June, uh, some of you guys know this. This will be new to some of you guys as well. But uh, Paige and I, back in the beginning of June, learned that she was pregnant. And it was a complete surprise. You know, we were deer in the headlights. Huh? What? Okay. Uh, for at least a few days. And then, I, then all of a sudden, soon we began to man, accept that this next season of life as a gift. Um, and so what began as a shock and it turned to joy and within a week it had become a grief. And, um, you know, as soon as the idea of, of being parents finally settled in with us, you know, things began to go wrong. Uh, we spent some next few days in the hospital getting different tests done and um, it quickly became conclusive that we had lost the pregnancy and uh, it was that was hard enough but then for me there was this other added dimension of the fact that Paige was actually or possibly in danger you know and that was like news to me like, and that scared me I was uh, what in the world is going on it was such a, an emotionally heavy ride, up, down, left, right for us. I'm thankful Paige is doing fine now. Uh, the whole process, though, provided just a glaring reminder of just how little control we have over things. It's amazing how being thrust into this scary unknown uh, causes you to come face to face with your desperation. It's a scary place to be. And I've relearned that I have absolutely zero control over the outcome of life. And actually, any sense of control that I have is just an illusion. And I wish I could say that I was super strong and I possessed unwavering faith through the entire ordeal. But honestly, I was scared. 
was freaked out. But there was a pivotal moment that came and I was lying wide awake on, you know, for several weeks. I know that you guys, a lot of you guys have gone through things way worse and are going through things way worse. And uh, so I don't, I don't even want to pretend that this compares to those things. But for me in that moment, I was just a scared little puppy. (laughs) I was, I was worried. I was scared. But this, this, there was this point that came as I was laying there, um, unable to sleep, coming face to face with my inability to control. And I love to have things under control. And uh, the Spirit of God reminded me that God is great. He is in control. I don't have to be. And there was a point where I just, I experienced a, this blanket of peace that came over me. In 20 seconds, it began to disappear and I had to like preach that, right, that sermon again. God is great. He's in control. Peace. And then it starts to slip. God's in control. God's in control. God, so you guys, God is greater than our fears. God's greatness reminds us that he is in control, so we don't have to be. So saying God is great, hear me on this, it, saying God is great isn't just a theological statement, it's a functional lifeline. It's not just a theological statement, it's a functional lifeline. Because when you are at the end of your rope, you, when you're tempted to believe like you need to keep control of things, it's at that point when you realize that you can't, and we, we, need, we need to know that God is. You know, also in the, in the section of 3 through 7, there's this, real quick side note, there's this uh, importance of speaking these things about God to one another. Like, one generation shall commend his works to another. As a youth pastor, that was kind of the go-to verse of just how important it is for our families to transmit the gospel from generation to generation. And uh, I love that. And, uh, but we do need to be reminded that our God is great and he has done great things. So let's be a community of people that loves to rehearse and to remind one another of, of what God has done and what he is doing. And then in verses 8 through 9, David begins to praise God for his grace. You see, God isn't just great, he's also gracious. And these are two, the two sides of this coin are inseparable. God is both powerful and he is loving. He's great and he's gracious. And I think it's so important to have both of these attributes and it's one thing to acknowledge, okay, yeah, God is great. But most major world religions would rec- recognize that much about their respective deities. You know, a great, it's a great being. What sets the Christian faith apart is an unrelenting hope that God is also gracious. So a great God without grace wouldn't be good news. In fact, a great God without, gra- without grace turns God into a cranky deity. <laughs> You know, and I think, uh, unfortunately, that's the view that a lot of people have of the Christian God. But David makes it abundantly clear that God is both great and gracious. He's both preeminent and present. And this idea is actually captured really well in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus prays, Our Father, which is a term of intimacy, who art in heaven. There's transcendence. God is beyond us, but he's with us. So what happens when we don't believe in the graciousness of God? Well, again, a lot of things can possibly happen. 
But one thing that for sure will happen is that we will begin to live our life trying to prove ourselves. The Christian life begins to function as joyless duty. And one way to tell that you've actually lost sight of the graciousness of God is that Christianity begins to feel more like, I better not screw up than it does, I've been set free. Christianity should feel like my chains are gone, not do more, try harder. And the psalmist, David, here is declaring that the Lord is gracious to all. And I love that he says all, because there's, I'm tempted to believe that, you know, because this all means everybody, which means you, Christian. But the thing, here's the, let me just say this real quick. I believe that there's, you know, when we become Christians or when people are saved, we make a really big deal about God's grace. It's like God's grace, you know, it covers all. And then for whatever reason, the longer you're a Christian, and maybe this is just me, the longer you're a Christian, there seems to be, you know, less and less emphasis on what God in Christ has done for me and more and more emphasis on what I need to do for God. And I, I feel like when we, when we minimize the graciousness of God, Christianity begins to feel like joyless duty. It begins to feel like bitter performancism. It begins to feel like uh, we, we get angry and I think ultimately it ends up leading us to burnout. It's so good to know that it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian a day or a hundred years, that you still need God's grace just as much as you did on the very first day. So he's gracious to all. And we, what happens when we forget that God is gracious, I think that, well, well, let's take the older brother in the story of the parable of the prodigal son, for instance, in Luke 15. You don't, don't have to turn there, but if you know the story, um, the older brother is, is very angry with the father for allowing the younger brother to come back in. He's, uh, the father's honoring his rebellious younger brother. All the older brother's hard work uh, seems to count for nothing. And there's this point where the, the older brother says to the father, he says, all these years I've been slaving away for you. He views himself as a slave. He also says, I've never disobeyed you. He can't, he can't understand why the father would allow the younger brother to be brought back in when he's been doing everything right the whole time. But he's lost sight of the graciousness of the father. Without grace, we inevitably view life as a transaction between us and God. You know, we do good works, and God, in return, blesses us. That's how it is. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. Okay, God? And when things go well, we're, we'll be filled with pride. And when things go badly, we either blame ourselves and feel guilty, or we blame God and feel bitter. But the fact of the matter is that everything that needed to be settled between us and God has already been accomplished on the cross of Christ. Everything. Believing it is finished sets you and I free to serve God out of joy and gratitude. Grace changes everything. So David exclaims that God is gracious. We don't need to prove ourselves. So he's talked about this great king. He's praised him for his great grace. And then in verses 10 through 16, David begins to reflect on the glorious kingdom of God. So what kind of kingdom does this king possess? And so once again, we see 
the, the, the response of the people, his creation, that are all giving thanks to him. As people of God's kingdom, and if you look down at verse 10, it says, like, give thanks to him and bless him. Verse 11 talks about speak of the glory of his kingdom. Talk of his power. Verse 12, make known to the sons of men his mighty acts. So what do we see going on here? Well, when, what we see is that when we see God for who he is, our worship begins, will be rightly oriented. When we see God for who he is, it, it straightens out our worship, puts things in their proper place. Paul Tripp, who's a pastor and author, uh, says it well. He says, because worship points us to God's glorious kingdom, it has the power to free us from the bondage of establishing our own. Because worship points us to God's glorious kingdom, it has the power to free us from the bondage of establishing our own. We live in what I would call a selfie mode culture. So real quick parentheses, I've got something to say. <laughs> it's funny to me, so selfies, you guys know what selfies are? Yeah, okay. Taking pictures of yourself. Okay, the, it's funny to me that whenever someone hands me their phone and asks me to take a picture of them, how often the camera that on their phone is in selfie mode. I mean, you can even, if you want it right now, you can pull out your camera, you can turn it on, see if it's in selfie mode. I won't judge. No one's got to know about it, but it's, it's just funny that how often our cameras are in selfie mode. <laughs> okay. Woo. But I'm just saying, like, we, we use the selfie camera a lot more than the other camera, which is actually a lot better, by the way. I've, I've learned that. But to me, you guys, our selfie mode lifestyles are just an indication of just how turned into ourselves we've become. You see, we are called to build God's kingdom. We are called to be a part of God's glorious kingdom, not to build our own. So seeing God for who he is, a great and gracious God, it redirects our worship away from people, away from things. It redirects our worship away from ourselves and our own pathetic little kingdoms. And it directs it to the rightful recipient, our only worthy king. So we are called to represent our glorious king who is both great and gracious. And this brings us to the grand finale. Okay, so kind of like a fireworks show. The, so far, what David has done, he's kind of, he's talked about God is great and then he expounds on that truth. He says, God is also, is gracious. He's expounded on that truth. He's like, you know, it has a glorious kingdom. And now, Verses 17 through 20, it's literally the grand finale. It's just like, and we don't have time to cover all of these, but uh, here's what, here, here, I have them listed out here. 17 through 20, he says, God is righteous and kind. God is near to all who call on him. God fulfills the desire of those who fear him. God hears their cry and will save them. God keeps all who love him. He destroys all of the wicked. And I don't know about you, that verse right there kind of makes me go, huh? Okay, God, that's weird. Um, what's going on? But what's so freeing about that is I think it's saying he's the judge, which means I don't have to be. Whew. 
You know, I think that's very freeing to know that it's not up to us to be the judge. He's the God of justice. Psalm 145, you guys, it's David's epic anthem proclaiming that God is enough. God alone satisfies. He cares for you. And what's really cool is that we don't have to look any further than the cross to know that this is true. Because in Christ, all of these attributes right there find their fullest expression. Check this out. Jesus embodied the righteousness of God. And because of his obedience, his life, his death, his resurrection, we are given righteousness from God when we trust in him. Jesus literally is God coming near. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. It is in Jesus that our truest desires are fulfilled. He is the one who hears us. He's also the one who saves us. He's the one who keeps us. And like I said, he's the judge, not us. So what is our response to all of this? And I think David, David tells us here, he says, call on him. And the truth is, you guys, is that we are all calling on something or someone. It's inevitable. We're all worshiping. We're all looking to something to save us. Psalm 145 is an invitation to call on the only one who can and will truly satisfy. Anything, and here's the, the truth, is that anything smaller than Jesus will never satisfy. Anything smaller than Jesus will never provide for us, provide our souls with what we need and what we're longing for. So may our worship be directed to the God who is great, gracious, who has invited us into his glorious kingdom, the God who alone saves and satisfies our every need. He is great. We don't need to be in control. He is gracious, so we don't need to prove ourselves. And his kingdom is glorious, so we don't need to build our own. I invite the band to come back up right now. And I want to just close with this quote. Like we saw uh, David Bookend's psalm with this idea of perpetual praise. Forever and ever. Uh, everlasting, perpetual praise. And I don't know about you, but when you think about heaven and you think about, are we going to be doing a worship service for eternity? Like, what's going on? And I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm curious, like, why are we tempted to believe that that's going to be boring? Why are we tempted to believe that? And I, I think a couple of things. I think we have a fallen perspective of heaven. That's one. And the second thing is that I feel like we are all addicted to that next best thing. So the idea of repetition, the idea of doing one thing for eternity scares us. I think, but we're all addicted to the next best thing, the next best app, the next best this, the next best that. And I think this quote uh, captures something remarkably profound. It was G.K. Chesterton who said this. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. Do it again. Perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. 
it is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be a mere recurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. (laughs) You guys, what if we could just enjoy God over and over and over again without looking elsewhere for satisfaction? David has has told us that we have a great and gracious God who has called us into his glorious kingdom. He is an eternal God who we will worship forever and in eternity we will never tire of being with him. We will be like kids asking him to do it again. Do it again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are indescribable. Lord, your ways are unsearchable. We thank you for your inspired word that reveals your character and your attributes. God, we thank you for the reminder this morning that you are great and that you are gracious. God, that we ask that you would press that truth down deep into the unbelieving regions of our heart, Lord. Help us to see you for who you are and trust that you alone satisfy our needs and that Jesus is enough. God, may we never tire of delighting in you. Amen.